Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to the Lunarverse. I'm Dr. Charles Liu, and please call me Chuck. It is a great pleasure to be here today with my co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan. How's it going? Hi, it's going pretty well. All right. Anything exciting going on at this very instant in the universe? Yeah, I mean, uh, Artemis splashdown happened pretty recently. That was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> landed yes. right in the Pacific there where it was supposed to, I think. So, uh, good. The stuff. fact that it splashed down is like good. The fact that it splashed down because it was supposed to splash down is excellent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, a wait. couple of spaceships have accidentally splashed down, but uh, this one was on purpose. Oh, terrific! And Artemis two is happening when roughly. Uh, 2024, I think, is the current guess, right. but maybe 2023, I don't know. All right. Well, let's hope for the very best. And today's wonderful guest, I would love to welcome Dr. Alexandra Kuznetsova. Hello. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. <laughs> it's <laughs> terrific good. to have you. You are at the American Museum of Natural History, uh, and you are a Sagan postdoctoral fellow, which for those of you who don't know, is named after Carl Sagan. It's one of the prize postdoctoral fellowships that NASA gives to promising young scientists who are leading the charge in the research that we love to do about the universe. So uh, thank you for being one of those wonderful scientists, Alexandra. Can't wait to talk with you and chat about cool stuff today. Let's go right to today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. Uh, or is it a joyfully cosmic cool thing, Alan? It's a joyfully cool cosmic thing. Okay. I think okay. You, you mix it around a lot. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, joyfully cool cosmic thing today has to do with an exoplanetary system that has been researched for quite some time. It's called GJ3929. And it turned okay. out that one planet seemed to exist around it, and it was an exo-Venus. But mm -hmm. now... Researchers have shown that not only is there an exo-Venus going around it, there's also a mini Neptune. Okay, so hmm. that is a weird solar system. Alexandra, what the heck is an exo-Venus and what the heck is a mini Neptune? Um, well, all my planets are fake, so... <laughs> <laughs> we'll get uh, to that. They live in a computer, but uh, generally, <laughs> exo-Venuses and mini-Neptunes are ways we like to characterize planets outside of our own solar system. We like to compare them to solar system analogs because as a solar system, I guess we're pretty self-centered. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know the um, planets here are the best, I think. No, of course. We don't call Venus like endo-Venus. <laughs> Maybe we Maybe should we do should. That. Yeah. Endo-Venus. We're, we're on an endo-Earth, you know? Yeah, we are on endo-Earth as opposed to an exo-Earth or something like that. But yeah, um, ex this exo-Venus around GJ3929 has an orbit of only a couple of days. And the mini-Neptune has an orbit of only like two weeks. So this is a very, very compact system. And we think of Neptune as this cold, distant planet that's like you know, billions of miles away from our sun, and the temperatures are hundreds of degrees below zero, right? So what is a mini Neptune doing on such a tight orbit? Alexander, do your fake planets actually do that? Um, well, it turns out most people's fake planets do that. What? Of a, uh, well, there's quite a conundrum uh, usually referred to in planet formation. So when you make a planet, uh, you want to make it and if you make it really quickly and it becomes really big, 
then it can actually start migrating through the disk of material that it's being born out of. Oh. And if you don't stop it, you can actually get it, you know, get chucked into the star. No. Um, so a lot of planet formation is actually how to keep your planets once you've made them. Oh. Um, oh, and so it's not super surprising. I think it's pretty common that people think that uh, migration is one of the uh, leading channels they think for pretty close in fairly large planets like that. That is so interesting. How how long does it take for a planet like Neptune to migrate from billions of miles away from the sun down into like a two week orbit? Um, it depends okay. <laughs> on whose model you ask, but uh, oh. on planet formation timescales, i.e. like Usually we're sort of thinking about planet formation occurring over, you know, one to a few tens of million years. Uh, it is definitely very achievable on million year timescales, oh, most okay. definitely. Even shorter timescales, even, depending on what fancy angular momentum you're using. Okay. Uh, so, really so how, shove the planet inward. Yeah. So how do your, your fake planets, so you say you make, you simulate planets on computers. Um <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty cool. It sounds like it could cover a lot of different kinds of things. So so how does that, how do you specifically do that and how to relate to other people doing this? Yeah, um, so I guess to be more accurate, I simulate how the ingredients of planets move around in a big old, uh, what we call a protoplanetary disk. Um, okay. This is sort of, you can think of it as a big pancake full of gas and interstellar dust and swirling around a star that's being born in the center um, and essentially everything you need to make a solar system is already in kind of the kind of interstellar clouds that we see uh -huh. so the disk just has well micron sized grains at the start we think so you wow. know one ten thousandth of a centimeter uh, and somehow we have to sort of shove them all together uh -huh. <laughs> into a close enough space to make big rocks um so a lot of planet formation is uh kind of centered around this question of how do we collect enough stuff to make the planets and then okay. how do we collect it in the locations that we think planets are being born and then how do we keep kind of bookkeep what they're made of all right so alan i think it's time to ask alexandra a student or more accurately have a student ask alexandra a question. Yeah. All right. So this question is comes from a student named Kevin. And Kevin is asking, how could you create an artificial magnetic field for a planet like Mars? Interesting. Um, wow. I assume this question is because Mars does not have a magnetic field and it yeah, used to have one. the idea. Yeah. And I guess for context, then uh, we think that Mars had a magnetic field and we think that the magnetic field actually helped protect the atmosphere from irradiation from the sun and so it was actually pretty nice to have a magnetic field because it makes things kind of homey uh like we have here on earth mm -hmm. uh, and after a while mars's internal dynamo the yeah. thing that generates a magnetic field shuts off mars loses the atmosphere and now it's kind of cold and uh hard to breathe oh. down there <laughs> but uh as far as what do you need to make a dynamo for an entire planet, uh, I don't know how you would build one because generally you need a bunch of 
if you're going to go with primary dynamo theory, what you really need is a bunch of molten uh, metal material that is conductive and you need it to be rotating. Wow. So you need a bunch of liquid metal inside the center of your planet. Um, Holy moly. So, so we do have such a thing in the center of Earth, right, Alexandra? That's why yep. we have a magnetic field? Yep. Earth has a dynamo inside, a geodynamo, and that is what helps us uh, not get pummeled by high-energy particles from the sun, generally. Ah, that's really cool. Now, what would happen... So, so actually, what would happen if our core stopped spinning is that we would lose our magnetic field, right? Yeah, but like, how realistic is that going to be happening? In, in fact, don't well, I? I remember like some disaster movie from the nineteen nineties or something where actually that happened and humans had to go down there and and restart the the spinning of the core. Do, do you remember this? Yes, I think yes, yes, that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I think the movie was called like the core, right? Yeah, it was called the core. I didn't see it though. Alan, you probably didn't see it because I don't. Think I haven't you were seen it. Born when it came out, maybe I you might were. have been. You might I have might been, have been, but I might have been real small. But uh, yeah, I, I've heard it's only okay, or maybe not even that. <laughs> Alexander, did you see it? I did. Oh. I don't remember everything that happened. I remember being quite disappointed because oh. I was went in thinking there would be a lot of you know like core, <laughs> you know, like, oh. but that was a, a relatively small part of the movie and. Oh. I was, I was pretty sad because oh. they didn't spend one time on the actual core. core. Oh, core, that's core. Yeah. So, so like, so in the movie, they're trying to restart Earth's core to have a magnetic field going in real life. I mean, first off, we don't even know how to get to the core, but like, besides <laughs> that, if we were going to do that on Mars, that would take like a whole lot of energy, right? Well, the thing is Mars is already spinning. I think okay. with Mars, the problem is in fact that the core is just too cold. Oh, the correct. It does not slosh about <laughs> in the right manner. Okay, so is there something else we could do? Could we like put like a bunch of neodymium magnets at like its orbit or something like without even do anything? Is there that much neodymium in the solar system? <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, I'm trying not to embarrass myself because I did paleomagnetism in undergrad. Oh, really? Oh, awesome. <laughs> so. Yes, you're right in that ferromagnetic materials like neodymium uh, have a magnetic field. Uh, I don't know how much neodymium you would need to generate the type of magnetic field that would actually be able to... Like do anything for Mars. Do anything on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, okay. The magnetic, yeah, a relatively mag inefficient way of uh, magnetizing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it could be. Right. It's, it's quite a lot of energy involved just to heat stuff. Or uh, in the case, if, if in, in the core, like movie, right, you, you would have to speed it back up again and, and start it. But, you know, the amount of energy, I, I don't think people realize just how much kinetic energy there is in the Earth's spinning. Like if you just take the Earth's core, you know, maybe a thousand miles across or something like that. And you imagine it spins around once every 24 hours, the amount of mass in there, your, your result is way more than a I million atomic it. bombs or something right i mean just like so much energy probably even more than that yeah oh yeah billions i don't know who well, knows i'm just thinking right because like part of the reason like we can get tidal energy like from like you know tidal power plants and stuff like that is because mm -hmm. earth spinning is interacting with the gravity of the moon and so if like we can 
get that energy and use it to power you know the power grid and it does like basically nothing noticeable to its spin then i presume that just means there must be tons and tons and tons of energy in the earth spin and we're not doing anything to it without doubt right and and that energy is being bled off in the tides as you said and it's caused the moon over billions of years to be uh facing us on one side all the time right so Presumably, something like that can happen over time, too, in that system. Now, now, Alexandra, when you are thinking about the creation of entire solar systems, you're thinking about things like this, right? Uh, magnetic fields being formed, uh, the rotation of things. And, and this thing you were describing earlier about a solar system, a baby solar system with a star just barely igniting on the inside, it's still embedded deeply in a cloud of interstellar material, right? How does that affect the formation of planets like the Earth? Well, I'm glad you asked because this is my favorite topic. Uh, <laughs> no, um, not a planted at all or anything. Uh, so it's quite interesting because when we talk about this phase of, you know, planet formation, it's called we generally call this part of the disk the embedded phase, and okay. for a really long time, uh, it was kind of like we don't talk about the embedded phase oh. <laughs> because it quite inconvenient because observationally if you are within a big old cloud of material that's very dusty it's super hard to see through uh -huh. um unless you have kind of infrared wavelengths and Ooh, james webb space jws <laughs> jws act but we really haven't had you know ir observations since spitzer mm. uh so it's been a real sad part for uh oh. you know <laughs> And with embedded systems, like you really need to uh, to be able to see past the cloud of material. And it's really even hard in the millimeter, like with ALMA or NGVLA, because it, it is just, there's a lot of stuff in the way, and you really can't oh. tell what's going on inside. I see. Uh, now, we've now, done a. ALMA is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, right? And NGVLA is the next generation, very large array. That's in yeah. Arizona. Oh, no, New Mexico. New Mexico. Right. Though those could see through them if you gave them a time or something. Yeah. So there have been actually a lot of neat studies with Alma as of late in which people have spent a lot of time and very careful analysis uh, actually trying to get at where the part of the disk is inside these embedded systems and and trying to kind of probe like, hey, can we separate out what is in this big old cloud in front and what's rotating in the disk inside? Uh -huh. um, okay. And because Alma allows you to generate map of molecule, wow, uh, which with pretty much unprecedented resolution. That's pretty cool. great. Um, and because uh, with gas observations and in, in the radio, you can do these make these things called channel maps, which mm. actually allow you to see how much of stuff is moving at different velocities or different oh. speeds. And so you can start if you have a nice model to try to separate out. Uh, material based on how it's moving. Wow. So what's the bottom line of the embedded phase? Like, is stuff going on in there actually that, say, for example, utterly upends all our regular neat ideas of how planets form? Or uh, is uh, it just, I would like... really like for people to believe that. This oh! is my uh, <laughs> rumbling, you know, carnival salesman pitch. <laughs> Did you know <laughs> that yeah. if we actually simulate uh, the embedded phase with you know numerical simulations mm -hmm. instead of well we spent a lot of time in the 80s doing pen and paper models and so oh, when okay. you're doing pen and paper 
everything ends up being a sphere and everything ends up being very symmetrical mm. and uh yeah. star formation is just not actually that spherical things are pretty messy lots of gas mm. is flying about and so when you actually have sort of a more realistic setup where you can account for the messiness where you allow kind of big old streams of stuff to fall onto the disc rather than just sort of a little quiet spherical collapse uh -huh. you can essentially shake things up a lot oh, <laughs> okay and so when you start doing things uh so you can imagine there are these very large long what we call like filaments or streamers mm -hmm. and they're impacting the disc because the disc has its own gravity and its own rotation and when they hit the disc they actually you know impart a lot of momentum and oh. energy and all fun things that we like to keep track of in numerical simulation uh -huh. and the disc feels it and it responds and it actually changes how material in the disc itself moves oh wow uh, so so that means that the planetary formation process <laughs> itself is heavily affected by all these streamers yeah. and all the so stuff coming in one of the interesting things we've learned um that is that essentially when you shake things up a bit, you can make um, the medium in the disk more turbulent. Uh, and so things can fly around a little faster. And it turns out that's actually kind of good if you want a bunch of dust to stick together because uh, you need it to hide. Oh, uh-huh. Good little bits of good. dust to turn into and big it's chunks. it's also good for solving some of the problems we talked about earlier mm -hmm. uh, where if we've made larger pieces of rock, how do we not lose them right. uh, into the big star? Well, oh. what we really need to do is put up some sort of barrier, um, something that oh. stops it uh, from oh, drifting wow. inward. And when you, turns out when you smack a bunch of stuff into a disc, you actually increase uh, the pressure in certain no. locations. It acts like a little fence uh, and sort of starts collecting your rocky dust and planet forming material into oh, wow. things like rings but it also means that it stops it from going further in well, that's um, great. so great. theory for me because i think that it's very you know self-consistent we can tell a story mm -hmm. that's works well with our idea of <laughs> what's going on in forming environments right yeah. and you know you can make your planets and keep them too which is also good <laughs> yeah. yeah we don't want all the planets crashing into the star yeah, that's no fun. That's great. Uh, do we have another question? Do we have a question for Alexander? Let's bring in another question. We do have a question. This question is from our well, one of our patrons on Patreon. Um, cool. Which is awesome. You know, if you want to, everyone listening, if you want to join us on Patreon, you can get your questions answered. And we patron questions get some priority here. Um, this is actually sort of going back to some of the stuff we were talking about before about, you know, narrative building and stuff like that. Um, yeah, the question from Cameron is, Carl Sagan said, we are a way for the universe to know itself. But is there a stigma that makes this knowledge unattractive to people? How do we inspire more people to learn more? And so I think part of the reason we're asking this uh, with the Sagan quote to you specifically is because you're a Sagan fellow. So <laughs> a little bit of a connection there. It's interesting to me because I'm not sure there is really a social stigma to say okay. you know stuff, right? Like, I don't think that's necessarily true. I do think that especially with astronomy, sometimes there's a disconnect between kind of like how professional astronomers interact with the public and the standards and norms of their profession 
and kind of how we draw people into astronomy. Like, you know, Carl Sagan is a master, obviously, of the things that he does. Like, even as a professional, like, I would be reading, like, Cosmos and tearing up a little because I'm like, wow, Carl, that's, like, really beautiful. (laughs) You know? And a lot of the things that make Cosmos feel so profound is that, in a way, the book is kind of art. You know, it's making you feel something based he's telling you stories and he's evoking uh emotion and it's really kind of a thing that we most associate with art and in the 21st century we like our disciplinary boundaries a lot and we tend to say science is objective which is not and then you know art (laughs) is this other right but as we talked about it like everything we're doing is also it's storytelling it's a human enterprise like it is inherently kind of not going to be just cold hard facts as you said and what strikes me kind of about that Carl Sagan quote is like we are a way for the universe to know itself uh is when I think about it I think about it like every person is a unique combination of things and experiences and perspectives and in a way like that's kind of what matters in that sentence like and I think Carl touched a lot of people because he made people feel like they matter right like yeah. you connected to the cosmos so that's really kind of that is the feeling that people are looking for a lot of times mm-hmm. and sometimes when we are like oh i am you know only here to look at the telescope and read the pixels <laughs> i cannot <laughs> on the metaphysical implications <laughs> of you know cosmology which i can't from a professional standpoint uh obviously but i think that sometimes we lose a way to actually talk to each other about the things that inspire awe and wonder. Yeah. So so let's just all pretend that we're experts at metaphysics and think about things even though we don't know what we're talking about because it's cool and it makes us feel good. What do you think of that? I, I don't know if it's well, even I, just that. Yeah. <laughs> I personally don't enjoy metaphysics that much, uh, <laughs> but I think that a lot of people who uh, come to outreach events <laughs> definitely do. Um, but I think there's a way... We can be inspired by the ways in which people in the past have kind of interfaced with scientific knowledge and art. I think my favorite example nowadays, I actually use it in my scientific talks ah. to throw people, is uh, Vasily Kandinsky uh, was yes. a painter. Composition uh, 9 is one of my favorite non-representational paintings. It lives in the Guggenheim most of the time. Or is that one eight? Oh, composition eight. Composition eight is my favorite one. Composition nine is a different one. Composition also eight. Cool. They're both cool. <laughs> Vasily Kandinsky's composition eight is my favorite piece of rep- non-representational art. It hangs in the Guggenheim uh, when it's not traveling around the world. Uh, so tell me, you got to tell me about Kandinsky and how you're doing this. This is fantastic. I like to talk about Kandinsky because you know he was the early you know 20th century. He was in the Bauhaus movement. He was doing all these things with shape and form and his art is really geometric. And one of the other things that you kind of learn about him if you read about him is that he was also just like a giant nerd by those standards. (laughs) He was really into the natural sciences. Like he kept up with new discoveries. He was very much intrigued by kind of what it means, what it all means and how he can fit it into his own kind of art and storytelling. But 
he didn't view it as sort of separate, right? He was yeah. incorporating it as this sort of like fundamental understanding of the human experience. He was, there's this one painting that he has that is in these like pale pink hues. Okay. Uh, and it's inspired actually by early microscopy images. Oh, wow. And called Capricious Forms, which I think <laughs> is just a very affectionate way <laughs> of thinking about microorganisms. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic and so I really kind of like that uh, not being afraid to sort of bridge how one you know the vibes <laughs> but yeah, yeah. yeah. And learns. I think that's, that's great Patricia's forms that's wonderful so you know Alan I bored you hopefully didn't bore you uh, I know that I, I regaled you over and over again with Composition <laughs> 8 when you were a kid uh, and no, your no, siblings as well yeah and, and in one corner there is a black circle within which there is a red circle. And I remember always wondering, like, maybe that's a black hole or something, a non-representational way of saying it, or maybe like a, a record or something <laughs> like that. Um, but now, Alexander, you're telling me that Vasily Kandinsky could very well have thought of that as a scientific, uh, artistic, emotional, amazing thing. That That's even cooler to me. Yeah, no. Uh, so I became kind of obsessed with him because the Guggenheim <laughs> like exhibit around the the uh, swirling ramp oh with wow his development through time um and then I was I was in Paris for a conference I stopped into a used bookstore oh. and I just like found this book oh wow. that was written by Kandinsky um and it's called concerning the spiritual in art in which he refers to the spiritual as basically um you know vibes <laughs> I don't. Um, and he has all these chapters about how you know to make shapes tell you uh what you're feeling <laughs> he has complicated diagrams oh look he at signs emotions to every color it's pretty wow he is he is in fact a giant nerd um <laughs> but so there are lovely chapters called the movement of the triangle um wow Sounds almost like you know Johannes Kepler back when he was talking about the harmony of the uh, harmonia mundi, talking about yeah. the music of the spirit. Is there is there a quote in there that's really cool? What what does he say? Uh, like, show me one one quote, or he quotes one person that's like something particularly cool. So it says, uh, "What is the message of the competent artist to send light into the darkness of men's hearts? Such is the duty of the artist," uh, said Schumann. So. Wow. He really does think that artists are supposed to make you feel stuff about the world. <laughs> there you go. Definitely not uh, whimsical, capricious forms, huh? You get you you have a solemn duty if you're an artist. You gotta bring the light hey, into people. Wow. If you can make somebody feel affection for microscopic organisms, I think that's also an accomplishment. Yeah. <laughs> well nice. said. Well said, Alexander. Whew. We have gone through so much, and yet I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. I mean, I want to talk about like bad movies or B movies, which aren't bad, yep. right? You like them? I want to talk bad. about like crazy stuff. I want to talk about, oh, I don't know. Okay, let before we wrap up, let's yeah, Alexandra just tell us like one movie that you've recently seen that you really like, and 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 just riff on it. I mean, I just want to hear about it. I will always hype up everything everywhere all at once because yes! that's my favorite movie of the past year yes uh, 
I've pretty much bothered everyone I know to get tea. <laughs> Absolutely. Michelle Yeoh, That's of course, great. is is, yeah. is magical, has always been. Uh, just amazing, yeah. amazing actor. Uh, but then the the guy who played Short Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is now an adult in this movie, and uh, and and there's all oh, yes, we, we well, shouldn't the spoil the characters. The characters are just funny, and and the whole thing. I mean, in a, in a sense, everything, everywhere, all at once is almost like a, a cosmic video game, right? You gotta power up, you gotta do this, you gotta go back and forth, and then there's this interaction between young people and older people and generational things and families who care about each other but don't know how to talk about it and i mean there's just all kinds of i I, i'm so glad you like that movie because i love that movie too now i love michelle yo i want her to get everything good in life (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no i really that movie was so delightful and i just remember like just constantly being sort of thrown between laughing and crying and it was it was one of those things that like you were really having the feelings while you were watching it yeah alan you saw this movie right i did yeah it was i really enjoyed it myself too yeah Mm -hmm. and and a hundred percent with you on the laughing then crying then laughing then crying was just amazing dr alexandra kuznetsova i wish we could go on and on and on but we just have to wrap up for now will you come back will you do this again Can we chat some more in the future? Please, 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 please. Sure. (laughs) Thank you. Can't wait to talk about all these wonderful things. So um, how can we find out about your work? Can can we uh, find you on social media or can we find you on on some other way, media things, books, whatever that we can find you? Well, there's my website, which will be astro.kuznetsova.com, which is my last name. Um, And I guess there's Twitter, but I don't really tweet much <laughs> i must okay. use it read about what other people are doing um that's yeah. at one au away the number one and then au astronomical unit away wow that's cool i love that that that's a great twitter handle congratulations thank you i was, was felt very clever when i came up with it <laughs> nice make sure to tweet some more so that i can like use that okay or, or put it on mastodon or something so that we can see it in more than one place one AU away. I like that. Thank you. Alexandra, it's a pleasure. It's really, really great to have you. Thank you very, very much for being with us today. Yep. Thanks for having me. Alan, as always, thank you so much for being an awesome co-host. Is there anything else you want to say before we head on out and call it a day? I don't know. I'm just glad to have these kinds of conversations. It's always really exciting to see what everyone thinks about these kinds of things. Terrific. Thank you, Alan. And yeah. to all of you, in the audience. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. If you like what you hear and see, please find us on Patreon. Support us. We'll do more of this wonderful stuff and hope to get you as much as you would like to enjoy about all the things that we talk about here on this show. So thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for being a part of the universe.